Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, and this is my co-host, Susan Fox. Howdy-do! And you're listening to the Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio, and our guest today is Gregory McMartin, the producer of a game called Consortium. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Fantastic to be here. So to meet you guys. We just call you Greg? Yes. Okay, that'll work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort that's of. very convenient. <laughs> my, my I first... call him uh, Emperor of the Galaxy, apparently. He's, he's the, uh, <laughs> Who called the, me that? The oh, master yeah. of the Consortium. Ah, <laughs> the Don, the... That responsibility, that weighty responsibility, yes. El Capo. <laughs> so, um, first of all... Uh, Let's uh, let's tell the listening audience about the game, and uh, you know just a little bit of quick overage on uh, coverage on sure. what it is, and and uh... sure, I'll, just, I'll give you the the elevator pitch we told everybody at PAX, okay, uh, to get to get you listening. Basically, a uh, murder mystery on a plane in the future. Cool. Who's so dead? Each of the... <laughs> well, and it's 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 also an alternate reality story. I mean, it's oh, yes. it's. Uh, I love the way it's presented. You log on the first time and you're told that you are going to be operating another human being by a remote uh, interdimensional link and that the people that you're talking to are real and the consequences are real and your job is to do your best to uh, to improve the outcome in that universe and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's something no pressure or anything. Fantastic way to describe it. Yes, that is our meta plot. That's the idea is that allows us to have the entire experience be in game. There's absolutely nothing that's out of game. If you if you you know allow your imagination to open up and imagine what he just said is is being real, then the game will really freak you out. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we will take you on a trip that you've never experienced before. <laughs> I, I thought that was refreshing. You know, I mean, it's the graphics in the game are good. You know, they're not, uh, uh, groundbreaking. Well, yeah, well, they're not groundbreaking, (laughs) you know, in in terms of, in terms of the quality of the graphics. It's the way they're used that makes it special. Uh, and it's, it's storytelling. Uh, you look and, and you talk to the characters and they're lip synced. Yes. Yeah, we use the Valve's source engine. Uh, so it's the same engine behind games like Half-Life, Half-Life 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Half-Life 2 especially, all the, you, can see, you see all the characters in that world uh, have a lot of facial expressions and a lot of really good lip syncing. We use the same technology to, to get our characters to be uh, as realistic as we could in terms of how they respond to what player does and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, but yeah, the, the, the graphics to, to yeah. fully address them—they're they're very much exactly the way they're meant to be. They, mm-hmm. It ties into it ties into the the, the lore, the mythos of the satellite—the fact that the satellite can only stream so much data from the other world. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a simplified representation of that world. Only the important details come through enough to be able to recognize and be able to make choices in that world and and and, and exist in that world. Um, and anything else is stripped out because of bandwidth reasons. So the idea is that every consortium game will get a little bit better at the, the quantum bandwidth side of the satellite. You can stream in more so that the graphics will slowly become more and more, like closer and closer to, to capturing more of the, the actual other world. Yeah. And the character that you assume the role of is, um, it's called a knight, as in a, a knight on a chessboard. Actually, a bishop. A bishop. bishop. That's right. Bishop. I'm sorry. Yeah. Bishop 16? Yeah. Six, actually. Bishop, bishop six. six. And a whole we're, lot of chess pieces and a whole lot of numbers in our game. We're replacing <laughs> a bishop who was forcibly retired. Yes. Because, yeah, he kind of, uh, he's the... Bit of a loose cannon. Yeah. Bishop, is it Bishop eight? Bishop eight, yep. Yeah. And uh, he has lost, uh, he's sort of lost his way. He's <laughs> lost uh, lost the, the sense of of uh, right and wrong. The lines have become blurred for him and it makes him a, a liability. Bit. A little bit. He he he, fl- he flew off the handle. He basically someone really made fun of his manhood, and he just said, "Well, yeah, well, screw you," and <laughs> unleashed hell when he shouldn't have. And that that was a big blight in the consortium from a political point of view. Uh, caused a big uh, wave of you know bad PR, if you will, for the consortium. So he was kind of forced out a little bit because of that. <laughs> yeah. Retirement, but you know, mm-hmm. just sort of forced retirement. So you you end up on this plane. It's a. Uh... C thirty eight hundred, and it's called Zenril. Zenril, yes. Zenril, and uh, uh, it has a cast, of, and the entire uh, the entire game takes place on the plane, unless you manage to get yourself thrown off, which is possible, <laughs> as I understand it. You know, if you're if you if you play every your main door, character, every door has a yeah, every door is, has a non scripted system around it. So if it happens, if a grenade happens to go off next to the door, it'll bust open, and you'll have a non scripted decompression event or anything around that door. I was going to say it'll be oh, an wow. ex- it'll be an exciting <laughs> game at that point, but short. <laughs> That's right. The cool thing is, it actually works really well. You actually you can, it's seamless. You you can you get thrown out. You can turn around. You can sort of see the plane falling behind you. If you fall out of the front door, you'll get you'll get, you'll fall in front of the wing, possibly hit the wing and die. It's oh quite, wow! Quite, quite nasty. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I didn't I didn't know that. I haven't yeah, I haven't actually funny. managed to get myself thrown off the plane yet. So. You have to almost try. <laughs> that's what. That's, there's, yeah, there's ways to accidentally have it happen, but yeah, it's it's you know. I've read some there, read some reviews on uh, people who have managed to make that happen, and it's not <laughs> yeah. easy to do. But uh, it's a very uh, it is a murder mystery, and it's uh, uh, it plays from a game from a, a game engine standpoint. It plays a lot like a first person shooter, but from uh, from a I mean from a game mechanic standpoint, from a game play standpoint, from a game design standpoint, it is a murder mystery and mystery, and it's extremely cerebral. And uh, I. Uh, there is a there is a track where you can uh, attempt to tell people that you are actually, um, you know, you're driving a meat puppet, and nobody believes you, and it, it irritates the hell out of everyone, you know, because the last thing they need is is uh, somebody with the uh, abilities and knowledge and access of a bishop. Who's clearly gone nuts? Yeah, who's clearly gone nuts? So it, this agitates them quite a lot. It does, and you know, you even go further than that. There's, it's a way. There's a way you can actually take a, get a brain scan down in the med bay 
and basically the doctor sees two imprints of, oh, yeah, of neural activity I, I did in your that. brain. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did that. And <laughs> like, uh, yeah, they verified <laughs> they verified that right. there are two yeah. people in the same body. Yep, yep. You know, yep. and, and did uh, they throw you out the airlock? No, they but uh, they did say better keep the, keep this to yourself for now. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you if you if you get that brain scan along with you telling them that you're from another world, then basically the doctor is pretty convinced that it looks like it's true. Mm-hmm. So he 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 gives you the advice that you probably should keep that quiet. Yeah, <laughs> but you whether or not to or not to, you have other opportunities to keep be, keep blabbing your mouth that you're dimensional. You know, see what happens. Eventually, it goes big places. So <laughs> yeah, we have big plans for that that thread in, in actually for the second game as well, which we're deep in working on right now. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you uh, you and your brother did this game together. I would say we are the creative directors of the project, yes. The two, two of us equally. Um, just like, you know, brothers that direct movies. Maybe the, the, kind of like the Nolan brothers recently that uh-huh. co-wrote Interstellar. Um, I remember I saw that and I was like, oh, that's so cool. And I said that to Steve and said, look, these brothers can do some really cool things. Well, that's so I love true. that movie. I love Interstellar. I love it. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love that movie. It's just, we have not, it's, we have it, not it, seen home. it yet. Which movie? Oh, Interstellar. 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 Dying to see it. it, it oh, yeah. It's Christopher Nolan's film and it's so beautiful. It's such a gorgeous film. I, I just, people, I just people love it. A few people hate it. You know what? It's I wonder why, and that's just intrigues me. It does intrigue me. It intrigues me even more when someone hates something that much. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, Steve and I, yes, we have an amazing relationship. Amazing relationship. A very very powerful, deep, creative relationship where he he basically wrote the entire interactive screenplay. I mean, we invented the interactive screenplay together, Mm -hmm. you know, actually invented the technology behind it, and then he basically figured it out and then wrapped his head around it and then basically learned how to write with our system and learned how to do Mm -hmm. it beautifully. And as a result, there's 550 pages of interactive screenplay that our game comprised of. It's a a novel. It really is. It's it's a a visual, virtual novel. And well, um, so it's it's all all him, you know. And you know, I just yeah, we, I did handle all the game design mechanics, you know, the sort of mm-hmm. production stuff. Because I've been making games for years, so I understood that stuff. But he just sort of threw himself so deep into the story, and I just love it. Came out of it, so yeah. It's it's the writing in the game is really phenomenal. I mean, there is there is nuance to these characters that goes layers deep. So tell us about the characters. Yeah. The characters, yeah, it was a huge, diverse crew of people. The idea is that every everybody on the plane you can talk to, everybody on the plane has a unique voice actor. Um, everybody has a very, very deep backstory. I mean, uh, Steve and the writing team, they spent a long time coming up with multiple pages of backstory for each of them and figuring out how they connect to the backstory, figuring out how they connect in, in, to, in with each other, um, uh, understanding the hierarchy of the consortium. So that was all mapped down onto it. So there's the, the idea is that the consortium is a structure that's um, very non-military. The consortium is not a military, it's kind of paramilitary. But it's constructed by there's the king at the top, which is an AI um, who ultimately controls all operations, and then there's the consortium queen, which represents the consortium on the global senate. She basically is the human voice of the consortium, and she she can she can counteract anything the king does. So they sort of bounce each other out. So she's the human counterpart to the AI. Mm-hmm. And then there is the consortium knights, which each of them have a ship or have a large group of people that they control, and uh, they're like the sort of the sub leaders. And then there's the bishops, which are the mandate enforcers. They actually are the ones that have all the high tech sci fi gear, weapons, shields, armor, equipment. And they're 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 going. They, they're basically their job is to go and enforce the consortium mandate, which is very simple. It's maintain global peace and and, and, and sorry, uh, keep global peace and maintain the Earth's environment at all costs. That's 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 the gist of the consortium mandate. Um, so any wars that break out, any any fights that break out in cities suddenly due to gang wars, a consortium uh, you know, a consortium um, ship can be called in, a bishop sent down, and they can just sort of neutralize the entire threat, put knock everybody unconscious, put everybody in jail. Um, so it, it's um, anyways, and then there's the the rooks, which are kind of the specialists, as medical rooks, uh, mm-hmm. military rooks, that sort of thing. Each of them, and they are connected to you, and they're sort of your 
own, always on your shoulder, able to advise you and help you in missions. And then there are the consortium pawns, which sort of do everything else, sort of all the grease, all the works, and keep everything flowing and going. Are they the red shirts? <laughs> it's really hilarious you asked that question because in the game, you can actually say, use those exact words. <laughs> Someone dies, you can be really disrespectful and say, oh, there's just a red shirt. <laughs> uh-huh. You can say that to the people in the game world, right? Oh, that's <laughs> and see what funny. happens. That's funny. <laughs> Um, and Rook 25 is the first person you meet in the game. And, uh, she's the one who gives you your basic information on who you are, where you are, and what you're supposed to be doing. And, uh, and even there, I mean, in the very first interaction, you have this, this contentious conflict. I mean, she just thinks, uh, she doesn't think much of you. <laughs> and you have to you have to win her over. You're starting on her bad side, definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, and you have to you you, uh, you start off in a neutral basis, and you uh, you earn trust or faith or a, a, a positive interaction, you know, a, a positive uh, uh, inflection to how those people react to you, and the more they like you, the the uh, the more positive their responses are going to be and the more helpful they are. And there are a lot of different pathways and, and you can really tick everybody off and and end up getting intention you know, they'll actually pick you up and throw you off the plane if they don't if you manage to irritate enough people. And I almost yeah, so that, I almost did. Now, being a <laughs> nice. going around and telling everybody that I was uh actually not of this world and just operating uh, Bishop Six by remote control. That was enough to nearly get me thrown off the plane right there. <laughs> what if you just went around and told them you were Deadpool? <laughs> well, you have this list of canned responses. You select. Oh. You select from a list. Rat. Yeah, we, we, haven't, we haven't invented like AI to, to, to recognize yeah. whatever you want to say. <laughs> we haven't quite got that far. Um, but but, there, but, but <laughs> I say it was tongue in cheek. But I, I. But yes, um, we do have the idea is that Steve did his best to try to have it so that the responses cover as much. Of the range of possible things that a player may want to say as possible. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, give them the context. So you can sort of take the conversation in all kinds of different directions. Um, maybe straight up insulting or slightly conniving or, you know, carefully trying to get information out of them. So you say things subtly or um, you can just obviously just be nice and be very courteous and, and, and um, respectful. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of different ways to approach it to see what, what transpires and how that character reacts. And yeah, as you were saying, what we call B6 alignment, basically. So every character has a number and the number goes up or down. So you can actually get them to distrust you more and more if you get into the negative or to, or to, to like you more and more. It's really a complicated web, the whole game, um, because there's story, there's narrative, and then there's all these things a player can do. And we're constantly referencing all the choices and decisions that players do throughout the game at a very, very low level. So something you didn't even think would be remembered by the game, suddenly you realize an hour later, oh, the game remembered I did that <laughs> because of what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. So there's a lot of sounds yeah. like a real teaching experience for working in the corporate America or or corporate <laughs> world anywhere. That's interesting. It's really cool you say that because it's kind of a political simulator in some respects. Yeah, it is um, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted to have fun with the idea of what if NPCs felt like real humans as opposed to just you know sounding boards for getting quests and buffs and stuff, right? Um, and yeah, that's really what we, we, we ripped up with that idea full on. As we just we just put, we put the pedal to the metal on that concept, and that's really what the first game's all about. So you wrote your own story tree engine, is yes, that correct? We did. we did. Yes, we basically uh, uh, yeah just invented our own system. We knew what we wanted to do. We knew the kind of the kind of how many. The idea is that each time you have a choice, it opens up 
another bunch of choices, and then you make a choice, and that opens up another bunch of choices, and we can go as deep as we want. So many of the conversations have many, many nested trees. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's really a fairly straightforward um, uh, conversation system, like what you might see in Bioware games and such. Uh, but it's the way it's written and how we reference alignment and how how it's all referenced by the game and stuff. The context of it is really is really what makes I think well, I think makes it special. So um, the, fact that, the fact that you're on a plane, the fact that everybody is on the plane with you, it really mm-hmm. it really lends a, a very different feel from from you know from what often the, some of the big sprawling games uh, they sort of you've got to move from one person to the next and you sort of once you're done with them you never come back to them and it's not really connected. Whereas ours everything's connected in a big complex web, so you, it feels very different because of that. So, so um, at what? Where's the level of granularity for the for your uh, for your story tree? Does it? Um, do you actually shift whole potential universes at once based on certain facts in some cases? Or well, I think um, every, any point in the tree can can be that. Well, yeah, but oh, yeah. there there are places in this there are places in the story that I encountered where it seemed as though major plot decisions were made based on things I did. Oh yes. How, how it works generally is that there are a, a few, like a handful of major plot changes. Like that if you make a choice, so okay, well, a whole bunch of content will be different later on because of that choice. Uh, so yeah, probably ten, maybe, in that, that are really, really major. And then there's like dozens of, of more minor ones where um, they'll remember you said something, and then later on, if you say it again, they'll go, ah, yeah, yeah, I remember you, you know, sort of just like a lot of little references to people are listening to you, the game is listening to you, watching your choices and um, so a lot of subtle ones, but yeah, there's what ten major ones. I mean, you know, people will die if you don't act. Like people, a lot of people sometimes will survive. Sometimes if you, you can, we never force the player to doing anything. You can just simply stand in a corner and do nothing. And you know, the, the game will kind of generally always continue. Um, there's there are some spots where the, the player input is needed, so you could spend hours in front of the information console and read up on the lore and stuff if you wanted to. But many times there's it, it, it'll kind of go into real time, and you'll know, you'll feel things are happening, and there's that heat is on and you kind of got to mm-hmm. act or not act and see what happens. Right. And we never say, you know, mission failed or in that kind of, you know, out of game crap. Yep. <laughs> you just end up dead. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you just die. Yeah. You just <laughs> simply die. <laughs> or, yeah. or you don't, or, you know, you, you, you fail objective and then the story just continues. Okay. Well, you, you know, so many times we take into account of having two different threads, one where this, this, you know, this, this objective succeeded and one where it failed and then it'll go forward with those two threads and different things will happen. So it's, it's, it's a very, interconnected sort of very organic web based on the, the context and the choices in the story and characters what the player does you know what the player says and does so where was the point at which you decided that consortium was going to be a thing when when did you decide to begin the production and how did 2006 it, 2006 so it's been a while it took oh, yeah. a while to uh from concept to uh, to finished work oh, yeah. and when was consortium finally released on steam 1.0 was released in january of this year ah wow and so out of that time, from the time you conceived of it to the time you actually started working on it, how long did that take? Seven years. Oh my goodness. So what, <laughs> what was it that, uh, what was it that you needed that you didn't have that took you seven years to get? Capital, mostly. Oh. Definitely. Development capital, for sure. Mm, I see. Okay. So you're probably just working for a living and doing other things while that was being pulled together. Yeah, I had savings. I mean, I had come from Radical Entertainment. I made a couple of good games there. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a really good tenure there. It was a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of good projects and good teams. And I had, I had some savings I'd saved up because uh, I had been planning to do this for years. And I had been sort of building it up, that idea. I knew I was going to go on my own strike and make, make my own company. And I knew the kind of game I wanted to make and experiences I wanted to make. Um, so, yeah, so I dived into that. I made a prototype right after that, 2007, a fully playable prototype of Zenlo at that time, built all within the Hammer Editor, the source editor. 
um, yeah, and, and then with that, I use that to sort of start to build up the team. My brother was the first people to come on board, actually, start 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 messing around the universe and building it up. And then we uh, we launched an alternate reality game in 2010, January 2010, and that lasted about three years. It, you know, it's all it's all poised for us to continue. As a matter of fact, we have some cool stuff in the works for next year that's going to sort of continue that. But the idea is the alternate reality game was took place about 15 years before the events of Consortium, mm-hmm. um, and it, of course invited the public to come in and join the game because as an alternate reality game, it's sort of that's you know it's sort of the sort of where the fourth wall breaking stuff began was there because it's all about the satellite and connecting to the satellite in its early stages before it was able to stream 3D you could sort of just jump right into the mind of the AI you were inside the circuitry and so what you're seeing is all flash based game you can still play it right now you just go to intermessalgames.com and click on experience and, and begin what's the what's the game. what's your the URL again that went bad a little <laughs> fast inter, interdimensionalgames.com interdimensionalgames.com excellent yeah. okay I'm going to try that after we get off the air here. Mm. Cool. And there's actually, because you have the game on Steam, there's a PDF, which is basically a hint book. The ultimate experience probably would look any frustrated because ARGs are really hard. Like, they're notoriously very, very difficult, very esoteric. You know, you could, you could spend hours scratching your head trying to figure out something really crazy. So in order to sort of, you know, speed up the experience and allow you to experience the story content without having to worry about hitting all these blocks is there's something called the um, IDGI1 Discoveries. It's a 150-page PDF that everybody who buys Consortium gets a copy of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it references all the material. It tells you how to sort of walk you through the ARG. So it allows you to sort of, you know, sort of get understand the whole backstory, understand what you're seeing, and sort of get the full experience. Um, but you know, obviously, if you want to get the real hardcore experience, you may need a lot more time just to go to the ARG by right. itself, figure it out. But yeah. Well, I found that the uh, the oh, what's I can't remember the name of the computer. Uh, there's a computer in your quarters that you can access yes. that gives information you, console. Information console. The information console, and yeah. it gives you a tremendous amount of back history as mm-hmm. to uh, who the various players are and and what they've done and where they fit into the story and and uh, I mean just the backstory on this is so rich and so well developed uh, like, that you just I, have, I still haven't drilled down to the bottom of it. And it makes such a it makes for such a rich, engaging experience. And oh, this is, yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, the the fact that it's science fiction and the fact that uh, consortium is uh, is such an immersive storyline and is so well developed is really the big reason you're on the show this evening. Is bec- uh, you. you know because this really qualifies as as uh, hard science fiction. I mean, this yes, is, this is good stuff. Cool. This is good so stuff. It's fantastic to hear you say that. You have no idea how happy I am today. You just made my day. You've made all our day. I'm telling you, when the whole team hears this broadcast, you're going to make everybody stay. <laughs> because that's why we work so hard and against all odds. And, you know, we, we, this was, we didn't have huge funding. We didn't have huge publishers signing off. And there's no publisher mm-hmm. in the right mind would understand this and go near this, right? It's, it's, it is hardcore. It is meant for somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who's willing to put the extra thought into what it is, what it is you're trying to do here. Um, yeah, and we try our best to be as hard sci-fi as possible. You know, where there's this concept behind everything. There's, you know, you, you can't go, oh, that, that's broken. You know, in, in many ways, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you here. Well, I, we're huge Star Trek fans. I mean, huge, huge, huge. I'm a big believer in Roddenberry's vision. Huge believer. Always, mm-hmm. always have been. Always will be. And you know, one of my inspirations is, was to try to make Consortium something that is approachable, that isn't obviously geeky. And by that I mean, you know, in a massive spaceship flying around in the cosmos, warping around, you know, to the stars mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, which is cool, and I love that, but it's also hard for many people to understand and swallow. So I wanted to, we wanted to make an experience that sort of anybody can sort of associate with, like understand being on an airplane, for instance, is something that most people can get there, you know, can feel, can, can understand it. But at the same time, it's a springboard, because the universe is a place where we've solved 
the hunger crisis, we saw the energy crisis, people are living in orbit, people are living on the moon, people are living on Mars. Like, this is a consortium universe. It's a very bright place. And mind you, it came after what we call the resource wars, which is very similar to Star Trek lore. Star Trek lore has World War III happening, and, mm-hmm. you know, lots of nukes flying and stuff, and everything goes to hell. But then out of the ashes, you know, rises the Federation, and, you know, things get really amazing. Um, so very similar, we've sort of taken a similar parallel approach to that. We have the resource wars in our case, and then the consortium comes out of that. And the idea is that maybe this could be this could become the Star Trek universe. It, it could be like you could see it as an early, early days of it, right? And mm-hmm. I love the fact that some people have played our game and said it just feels like an episode of the next generation or feels like the episode of the original series. Because that's that. Just, well, the yeah, crew interactions are very much like that. I mean, everybody has uh, everybody has a job. Everybody has a rank. Uh, you're all working in an enclosed space. You have to understand your environment in order to function in it. Um, and it, you know, except for the fact that you can look out the occasional window and see clouds going by, it does feel like a starship. And in fact, um, when I first uh, started the game, I thought, oh, that's interesting. This is actually an airplane, not a starship. And yet <laughs> the entire social construct and the, the, uh, uh, the science fictional elements in it uh, would have transplanted just as easily to a space opera format. It sounds like a game engine that could translate to anywhere, really, the, any any enclosed system. I could I could totally see this yeah. turning around and being a a gathering of of mafia dons and their their <laughs> their their uh, you know operatives. That would be fun to make write a game like that. Yes, you know we we actually oh, you have it with my blessing. Yeah. <laughs> totally. There is a system, there's a formula we've created here. It's inter- we only internally understand it, but there is one. And it, you're right, we've, we've raised all kinds of fantastic ideas that's just radically different, um, but, are, but, but yeah, but imply the, the exact same system. You know, it does require having a closed environment and then characters that are well thought out and then written using our system and then you making sure that the player's always in the, in the mix of that. Because the idea is they're always aware of what the player's doing and we stay out of the way, mm-hmm. we stay out of the way of the player's agency, right? So the player could literally talk to nobody. You could say nothing. You could, you could engage in all this, you know, over 4,000 lines of recorded dialogue if you wanted to, or you could just close your mouth, not say a damn thing and see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really about trying to stay out of the way of the player and, and try to, you know, let, allow them to take, take the story wherever they want to take it. You know, within within certain reason, obviously, because there's a narrative there. It's just it's sort of playing, it's playing a, playing a dance with the player. You know, <laughs> that's sort of how we see it. Well, it's it's uh, it's just an amazing it's an amazing thing to experience. If you uh, it, 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 you have to have a, a computer that can at least get out of its own way. Uh, I've got a an eight gig machine with uh, uh, it's four hardware cores and four more virtual cores and a an NVIDIA graphics card from I think four or five years ago and the fact that it has that four or five year old graphics card means it crashes sometimes. So what what would be the minimum uh, computer that that I can have to to play your game? It's a a DirectX 9 game so So it's Windows only. Okay. Right now it's Windows only. The Mac version is really close. It really is. It's sitting in our poise almost done. It's just a, yeah, we've got a Mac version in, in the works, yes. So eventually it'll get released. We just, it's hard to give you a time frame right now. We're trying to juggle so many things. And, you know, we're small operations, so we can't, mm-hmm. we can't do so many things simultaneously. But yes, it's about 90% done. Do you have to right rewrite now. the thing in Objective-C or? No, it's just, it's just a lot of porting. I mean, it, right, right now it's it's just, there's some esoteric problems with the with just bugs, really. To be honest with you, like, you'll have to figure out why in the, on this, you know, in this OS does this. And, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just, just it's, it's it's a fair amount of complex work, but a lot of a lot of the, a lot of the groundwork has been done on it. So you're you know listeners can expect the next version soon. 
at some point we'll just drop it as soon as it's done. We'll, we'll launch it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. What have sales been like? How have you been doing? They've been okay. Um, you know, we have, we've had, one of, one of the areas we, you know, we focused all our efforts on trying to, on the experience itself, on the finishing it. I might, personally, all of us had tons of, of production work to do. So mm-hmm. honestly, we, we, we kind of screwed up the marketing a little bit. You know, we, we launched right after, uh, right in the beginning of January, which is right after the Christmas sale. Oh, great. Mm, it's yes. a pretty bad idea if you look at it in hindsight, right? Uh-huh, yes. Like, yeah, well, and it's, sales. you couldn't, <laughs> but could you have launched it before the Christmas sale started? No, you Probably. launched it, you launched it in time for CES. <laughs> okay. Oh. Is there the computer electronics show where, where the, where the consumers get to see it and, uh, where the, retailers would get to buy it. So well, that's and not the, so dumb. Well, and the, the other not-so-dumb thing is you didn't ship it before the thing was done. That's true. We you know, I mean, it's, I've, I've worked for so many game... I used I did uh, game development for about uh, 12 years. And uh, we shipped every game I ever worked on. Not every game I ever worked on should have shipped. <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, at all. I can think of a couple of them that shouldn't have shipped at all. Uh, there was yeah, one it, called. Uh, it was a very stressful time. I people was, get you know, get impatient to get the money, and that's that's not good for gameplay, and it's not no. good for comp- uh, consumer relations. Yeah, it was. Uh, no, no, it's not. I mean, we, we honestly, we. I think you know. There, I think funny thing is coming from this perspective. This is the first okay project I've actually produced entirely. You know, sitting at the top, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. In previous, I've been in, in creative. You know, principal creative leads where I'm involved in making big games, and you know, certainly having a lot of creative control and power or whatever, but having a lot of, you know, direct influence on the game itself, but not being in charge of the cash flow of, you know, the charge of the money, right? Um, This is the first time I was. So there's a lot of challenges I had to overcome just professionally speaking in terms of learning how to do that um, and actually practice and doing it, you know, um, that would be very, very trying, very, very, very complicated, very complicated thing to balance out the schedule, the tasks that we know in the game we wanted to have made balanced Mm -hmm. out with the budget. It's very rarely that those things equal out. (laughs) So it's, you constantly have to find ways to make sacrifices, and you know, looking back, we probably. Sh- the funny thing is, is that, is that I, I guess I am proud of the fact that we didn't use the Steam early access, right? Many games right now relying on that have pretty heavily, right? Um, you know, I probably still would have if I go back in time and make the change. I probably would because it could have mean that we could have soft launched it and gotten all the bugs cleared out because we actually relaunched the game, so to speak, in, in April uh, called the Master Edition, and it, it was mm-hmm. heavily improved based on all the feedback we got from all the players and it had fixed a huge amount of bugs and issues and. It's really, really crystal squeaky clean now, in my opinion, to a large extent. And so, you know, in hindsight, I prob- probably probably should have put the game in early access for a few months as late beta and then actually mm-hmm. said, OK, officially said it's done when we launched that. And so hindsight being what it is. You know. Well, in my case, uh, uh, I was able to fix my graphics in my crash problem by simply reducing the resolution a little bit. And, th- and that's all it took. You know, it, it was the the ultra high resolution, sixteen hundred pixels across by I think fourteen hundred high. Okay. That uh, that for some reason my driver wasn't handling. Oh boy! You know what? And the it's PCs because it's an old driver. Huh? PCs are a nightmare from from the dev point of view. It really is. Oh yeah. I, I you know I started. It's funny. I started my career making PC games, and then I jumped to consoles, and, mm-hmm. and then back to PC. And the, the consoles, you know, as much as I love PC gaming and playing the keyboard and mouse. The consoles, you're only developing for one machine and one set piece of OS, right? PCs, so you know exactly what it's going to do. A jillion different configurations. And it's a nightmare because who knows what someone's machine might have, you know, might be somehow incompatible with what you put this software. Well, and you have to rely on, you have to rely on DirectX or OpenGL to tell you when the hardware is incapable of doing a certain thing and sometimes it lies to you. 
<laughs> because because the because the uh, the manufacturer supplied driver may have a bug in it or something. It lies to you. Exactly. That's exactly. a way to run a business. Well, <laughs> it's they they can't <laughs> you know they yeah, can't right. necessarily find every problem and uh, exactly. uh some of the, or, some or, of the or, things you know, that a computer game will do yeah. will exercise the hardware to a point where uh you know where the graphics card is asked to do something that no other game has ever asked it to do. So NVIDIA has to actually issue special patches to address individual games. And this sometimes happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Quality yeah. assurance, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's why. And, uh, no, I'm, I did quality assurance at one game company and, uh, we did, we had to do iterative tests on our products to make sure that it ran on a gazillion different uh, configurations. And it sounds mm-hmm. either like it could be a lot of fun or really boring. Uh, <laughs> it it fluctuated between both extremes. Mm. <laughs> so um, yeah, it would have been nice to have had a twenty five person team to wheel on the game for four months. You know, I, I, that's one thing. I didn't never used to. Uh, the first time ever, I was making a video game not under the wing of a big publisher. Lots mm-hmm. of money, right? So the experience of doing that was kind of very harrowing because um, I, you know, didn't fully appreciate the, you know, the, the utter importance of having a dedicated huge team like that cranky, especially making a game like the one we were making because it's so experimental. I've never made a game like Consortium before. I made lots of video games, but not like mm-hmm. the Consortium. So I was, I was personally we're f- fixing so many bugs every day. I had kind of a tunnel vision. So yeah. Well, and, and the other problem <laughs> with, really with uh, if you don't have a consistent team, working on the entire project from beginning to end, you have the problem of institutional knowledge of the game walking out the door periodically. Mm, that's true. And, yeah. uh, well, well it's really, really, yeah, it's undervalued in many cases. I, I would definitely, for our next game, we'll definitely be way more testing before we throw it out there to the public, right? But the point is, I'm really happy, really happy with it now, and it's still making new fans, and we're really excited and very proud of it. And so, you know, it, it, this, the fact that it's slowly, it's just, it's a slow burn. It's taking more time than we hoped it would take. Well, and here's something that I think is going to be working in your favor. Hmm. It does not pretend to be a cutting edge, uh, cutting edge computer visual effects game as hmm. so many of them do. It depends on story and it's got a good solid story. And even, uh, you know, even five years from now, it's still going to play well. <laughs> and so I think, I think because you haven't placed that emphasis on, uh, on the latest shaders and the latest visual effects algorithms and, and using the GPU to maximum possible advantage and, and <laughs> yep. getting the meniscus of, of moisture in the, in the uh, character's eyes and the close-ups and this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, your, the expectation that the players have is, managed or moderated and they'll be concentrating more on the gameplay and the story which is exactly what you were focusing on in the first place so uh, uh cool. i have yeah. i have to say well done well done <laughs> thank you sir well played <laughs> sir and so uh the big the big task of production and and uh and managing the production of a game like this and then uh, you get to the finish line and all of a sudden it's public relations and advertising <laughs> and, and those things yeah. that as a producer you never had to deal with before. Oh. What was that like? It was, you know, chicken, what's, what's, what's the, uh, fish out of water. Fish out of water. Chicken out of soup. Chicken out of soup, yes. yes. 
Um, yeah, fun. honestly, it's been hard. It's been, this whole this, this entire year has been really, really tough for me. Like tough is in like just learning so much and learning the hard way. Um, oh, you know, yeah. We had a fantastic show at PAX. We really did. We, we set uh-huh. up a really cool booth and we had people come by and play in our game and big posters and we raffled off the posters at the end and had just, you know, gave, we talked to a lot of new people that never heard of the game before they saw it. It was a fantastic weekend. Um, now, where that was, where was that? Experience. Where and when was PAX? It was that was the end of August in the Seattle Convention Center. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, PAX Prime. Yep. The big show that the Penny Arcade guys put on every year. Mm-hmm. They have PAX East now, too. So it's two, two big game shows that, yeah, and the companies go all out. I mean, that's an amazing show. Like, just like huge, like one game has this big monster as one of the player characters, and they had this gigantic sculpture of the monster that was right there. It was like amazing. And then this other game uh, had built an entire castle like a whole inside of it, it's just 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 opulent, it's amazing. The, the, the expense that companies are going to order to make like a, a theme park, you know, a, a video game theme park is wow. kind of what it felt like. That's awesome. Uh, it was really was fantastic. We got a lot of actually, there's a video online that we, we, we took of the crowds and sort of showing off the booth and whatnot. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic time, and that was really one example of the things I've been constantly trying. You know, I've never been in honestly, I was never a fan before of, of social networking personally, I never felt, felt much use for it, right? But over the last year, I've had to like grow to love it. So, you know, the Facebook page and the Twitter, the tweeting and all that sort of stuff is I'm kind of new to that stuff, to be perfectly honest. Um, And and there's so much more to it. I'm we've uh, we're uh, we've dived into that as well. And (laughs) and we found out that uh, there's so much to know that you really it really takes uh, an expert who does nothing but that. This is why we have teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? That's no no kidding. This is how we found out about Tumblr. Oh boy, Tumblr! Yes, we have a Tumblr account now. We haven't used it much, but it's there. It's got some stuff in it. <laughs> yeah, I would I would advise jumping into Tumblr with both feet. All right, uh, because okay. it's going to get you a lot more traffic than Facebook and Twitter ever will. Okay, interesting. Okay, all right. Now you've well, yeah, cool. I mean, we'll we're do. we're <laughs> finding that out. We're uh, the uh, your target audience, uh, the sixteen to twenty five. They're on Tumblr, not Facebook. Okay, so <laughs> there you go. Good Pro tip. Point. Uh, and then next year we'll we'll ask our teenager consultant what you know where to go next time. Well, we've also we've also <laughs> hired we've also hired a PR firm yeah. because uh, we just had no, you know, we had problems that we needed to overcome that we had no idea how to how to get past. We should just get more teenagers. We need uh, a thirteen-year-old who won't age out so fast. <laughs> No, but super, but super but seriously, seriously, hiring a PR firm was probably one of the smarter things we've done all year. Mm. You know, so, the PR we'll firm is, is Stephen, my brother. Um, I, you know, I'm actually quite proud of how we have um, how we've done our public relations in terms of how we've spoken to our players and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, we've always been very, very honest. We've always been very. We don't. We never hold anything back. We always say it like it is. And I think our, our players have really appreciated that. Um, you know, the Steve has just had a natural. For some reason, has a natural you know, natural twins for writing really good PR in terms of like saying mm-hmm. exactly the truth, and, you know, and explaining how we're dealing with it. And so bringing, bringing people really close to our, to what's actually happening. Right. Uh-huh. And, and I find that people find that refreshing. I, we got some people that really saw some of our posts, how, how brutally candid and honest we were. And they're like, well, you know, you need more developers like you guys, you know, as opposed to, you know, insert some corporate entity that's saying, you know, spinning stuff around and, Making something bad look good and all that kind of crap. Oh, it's so easy. It's so easy to. It's so easy to fall into that mode of of, of PR as well. I mean, we the firm we hired is uh, Rabid Fanboy Productions, and uh, they specialize. And uh, Alexi Vandenberg runs it, and mm. uh, they specialize in the world of geek. 
and it's uh, and he's smooth and he can speak PR to PR people, but he's real and it makes and people well, can tell people aren't stupid. Well, and and really- you're right; it does make all the difference. Being genuine and being mm-hmm. being upfront about things instead of right instead of just uh, having some corporate PR monkey right weasel spin, speak spin master yeah, yeah no, spin, spin master. master or you know weasel talk and and yeah, put totally. that in your ads i mean be, yeah, because totally. then you, can, you start you start to create stories out there that aren't true and it's just it's just, mm-hmm. it's just nasty you don't want to go there right you just see be as genuine as possible i think that has the most long-term you know um benefit that's for, it let's know, write a game about it, it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's been done actually publicists and weasels Publicists. Yeah, <laughs> dungeons publicists and weasels nice <laughs> yeah. humans and humans and households. Yeah, yeah. Where where a bunch of dragons and and dwarves and orcs sit around and pretend to be lawyers and <laughs> gr- grocery <laughs> clerks and telephone operators. In a house, they need to be able to look over there. Where would that take place? It wouldn't work inside a house. They, the house would become trash pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're working on uh, another game based on yeah. the universe of Consortium, and it's yes. a, a sequel? Yes, it is. Direct sequel. A yep. direct sequel. Okay. Um, and, at, and who dies this time? I think, wouldn't that be telling? It would be spoiling the crap out of things. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, uh, how far along is that project? What's it, what's it called, first of all, and how far along well, is it? It's called Consortium, the Tower Prophecy. Ooh, I like that. So, are they in a tower? The game takes place in a tower, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so imagine rather than on a plane, it takes place in a gigantic, futuristic skyscraper. Well, towers can be very dangerous places, especially if you get chucked out a window. Fun places too. <laughs> a lot more space to play around with in terms of uh, level design and you know mm. player exploration and stuff like that. I'm really excited about how this is turning out, actually. So yeah. Well, and uh, it also solves having confined spaces also solves a number of problems from a uh, level design standpoint. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, because it limits uh, it limits the number of polygons in your view at any oh, given you point. You can you don't you don't have to render farther than. Uh, maybe, uh, the length of six or seven heights, uh, six or seven character heights away from the character. You don't have to render out that far and it, 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 uh, it just reduces the graphics load tremendously. Right. Indeed. That's all true. But the really cool thing is the technology is reaching a point now where it's almost, you could, the engines are so powerful and the technology is so powerful that you can almost build whatever you can imagine. <laughs> Like it's just it's becoming it's coming into a really I think an awesome um, golden age I think in many respects in terms of the kind of experiences that we're going to be able to create now for for for, for gamers because before you were, yeah you were restricted very much by that stuff but less nowadays way less so so the the, cre- the creative palette is just mm-hmm. widening in terms of the different spaces we can make so a tower opens up all kinds of possibilities or we can have some really big epic big spaces we can also have fake spaces we can really just sort of it's a big playground really mm-hmm. we can do all kinds of cool things yeah when I was doing it. Uh, um... I was working in computer games right at the dawn of hardware acceleration for 3D. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, you worked on adventure games. That was, yeah, that was really yeah. cool. You, you know, I was yeah. doing adventure games mostly. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, or isometric, uh, isometric uh, graphical adventure mm-hmm. games, you know, yeah. where it didn't really depend on that that much. Yeah. It didn't yeah. matter. You're just printing tiles and stamping mm-hmm. one over the other, and that was that. But, uh, you know, later came, um, uh, 
polygon buffering and and you know you had the w buffer um and then yeah, later came in software <laughs> yeah and that was still quake. done in software <laughs> yeah yeah doom was a software yeah and then of course quake came out and that was like the, you know that was designed for yeah the yeah quake broke it open and <laughs> then um uh i think the next big thing that started happening was that the depth buffering started being hand and polygon sorting started being handled on the gpus and that's when things really broke open Mm-hmm. You know, because you you could now you could now uh, 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 throw polygons at the screen and not worry about what order they were going in, you mm-hmm. know, in turn and just let the card figure out what to render and when. So. Yeah, well, graphics just you know that the whole the whole graphics arm arms race of the industry has has been has been breakneck and is, is still going right. That's, although the companies that are involved in it are having a much harder time now because consumers are having a harder time being able to distinguish. You know what's better graphics or not? It's it's reached that point now where the diminished the, the, the returns are starting to diminish, right? Which makes me happy because I I want to see more games that are focused on gameplay and story and things like that. Um, it's the kind of games I want to play and the kind of games I want to make. Um, mm-hmm. So I I'm I'm look forward to the day when the industry is not so obsessed with just visuals, visuals, visuals all the time, right? Um, there's a reason for that. I mean, it is. It, it, it people are visual, we're visual creatures, so it, it, we tend to you know get a more visual reaction from seeing a screenshot that looks gorgeous than would anything mm-hmm. else. Yes, that's yeah. I, I agree with you. This yeah. the uh, uh, there is a graphics race, and um, uh, at a certain point, I think a lot of game companies stopped trying to play that game and started concentrating on story. And that was when uh, you saw the rise of middleware like Unity mm-hmm. and, and the uh, you know the Half Life engine and, and things like that, so that game developers could concentrate on creating a game. Instead of creating an engine from scratch, I mean, it right. used to be that the yep. the uh, what made a game cool was that it could do this new graphics trick that no one had ever done before, you know, or right. something like that. Oh and, yeah, that, that's how they sold it. For you sure. can't it play like, that it, game. In this game, obviously, looks way better than this game. It, the, the whole idea is that the leaps they could do, or every single time you'd see it, you'd immediately look at it and go, "Oh my god, amazing graphics! I've never seen that before in my life." Right? That was possible for many years. Now it's not so possible, right? And mm-hmm. so it's, it's interesting, interesting seeing things start to change and shift that way. And more emphasis has to go now onto the things that most gamers really care about in the end, which is, you know, gameplay and story and immersive aspects and stuff. You know, so you, you, can play, you, can, you can play a game that has the best graphics in the world. And mm-hmm. if the game itself sucks, you only play it for 15 minutes, right? And go, oh, pretty graphics. but I'm Yeah, gorgeous, but I can't play it. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. if, if I get killed in the first 15 seconds, even on easy level, I'm not playing this again. <laughs> right, right. Or if it's just boring, boring, and the voice acting is crappy or... If, if, if the interface is sloppy and you, can, you can't you can't use your you know inventory is unusable or you know things like that right that just make uh-huh. the game just not fun it doesn't matter how pretty it is you know you're not going to play it. So what do you play apart from your own games? What's what's your favorite stuff? Um, honestly, the last couple of years, one of the games I've been most impressed with is Dishonored. Mm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore that game because it, it embodies a lot of the old school um, first person exploration level design methodology stuff that I was involved with as well in the late nineties and into the early two thousands stuff that I was really interested in stuff that I was really deep in. And I can see that there's an old school crew that made that game that understands that stuff. And the levels are really, really just fantastic because they, they, they do a beautiful way of blending architectural details that look like an architect created them as in they look like it's real, uh, but also beautifully symbiosis, symbiosisly, like almost like a almost like a seamless mixing with actual level design, game design stuff in terms of 
players being able to use all this stuff for gameplay purposes. So there's a really nice synthesis of those two things. That's what I'm looking for, the synthesis between those two elements in a game that's just genius. And the, add on top of that, the abilities that the player has, all the different ways you can interact with the world in terms of how to, how to, how to interact with the, the bad guys and the good guys, it's, it's, and it allows for you to, to kill or not kill. And it's had a lot of the sort of same stuff that we're really passionate about the consortium has in terms of you, you, know, you can decide to kill or not kill, or you can decide how to solve mm-hmm. situations in whatever way you want to. So they, it embodies that. Um, but just it, it's the, the art direction is also gorgeous. It's the same guy that I believe it's the same, same gentleman that did, did the art direction or was a big part of it for Half-Life 2. Um, did their direction for Dishonored, and you can see it. It has a really beautiful sort of, sort of like an art pasty, like a past, like a, like a, almost like a painting like look to it. But it's also just gorgeous. I mean, yeah, it's just a fantastic game. You know, I I recently bought for my wife and myself um, the Civilization Beyond Earth, um, and I bought it just blindly before reading any reviews. Just bought it, and, and we played quite a bit of it now, and I'm really disappointed with it. <laughs> oh. I love I love Civilization. We my wife and I played probably 120 hours of Civilization multiplayer. We really uh-huh. wanted to do that, play multiplayer. But just playing the single player, it's just, I'm very underwhelmed by the game. I'm very disappointed. You know, that's... Oh, that's, that's too bad. I'm interested, but it's... it's yeah. <laughs> I, like that you play, it's I like that you play with your wife, though. The family that plays together oh, stays together. <laughs> totally, yeah. I We've had a lot of good time. Uh, we've, we've played... Um, bunch of Diablo type games together. So that's really fun to just walk around with two. Oh, I remember when Diablo hack, first. Hack, I, slash games, multiple co-op is so much fun. <laughs> I remember when Diablo first came out. It was 90, 96. Yeah, me too. And, awesome. uh, oh my God. I mean, the, 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 I was working at a game studio in uh, Chatsworth, California and the entire studio, uh, when we weren't working on our own stuff or playing Magic the Gathering in the break room, <laughs> we were playing that. Well, that so good. Yeah, yeah I, I even love a single player. I remember just I just I'd inhale the single player. And I was like, I want more, I want more. Like I just couldn't get enough of it. It's just it's just so good. Yeah, they, they really. Yeah, Blizzard's always been fantastic, right? It's always from the beginning. I really, I really, I respect Blizzard a lot for sure. A, a lot, a lot, a lot. Well, it's been yeah, there's so much, so many good games coming out these days. It's almost hard to keep track of them. Oh yeah, so many. Well, I mean, it, it's and they're so expensive, and that's you know that's one of the big barriers to entry. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people. Uh, you know, you have this big, rich, deep game like Skyrim, and it costs you sixty bucks. You know, sixty bucks—that's mm-hmm. that's a fair chunk of change. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and then the other, the flip side of that is that you can play Skyrim for probably three years and never play all the quests. <laughs> and uh, you know, so there are there aren't that many. There isn't enough player bandwidth to go around uh, no. to buy everything. So and and, and then th- when you want to sell it back, they give you pennies, pennies on the dollar. Yeah, and it, and it seems like a trivial thing, but it's one of the things that I liked about Consortium. It's the price is not that high. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on, you think uh, it's on really Steam. worth it? You know, it's, well, it's quick, money well spent. Sorry. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll quickly touch on that because some people have bought the game and then ran to the whole thing, just made a bunch of choices, got to the end and said, oh, the game's only four hours long. This is this, this is not for $20, blah, 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 blah. But it's unfortunate because I know because of the way they wrote the review, everything else is that, in my opinion, we did such a good job of having the story be so seamless in terms of reacting to your choices and decisions that you could play through the whole game and not even realize necessarily that there's all these other things you could have said and done to trigger a whole bunch more content. Mm-hmm. Now, our game is such an elaborate web that that you can play it many 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 times and keep seeing lots of different new stuff, lots of different pieces of content, and unlock new things you never knew about before, things of that nature. And people, I don't think people realize that because there's really no game that does that. Oh, by <laughs> the way, know? I want to report so. a bug. 
Go ahead. Yeah, uh, in the uh, uh, the lower hold, there's supposed to be um, something that you're supposed to get out of the tool ch- tool kit or tool chest yes. uh, on the wall as you go out. Yeah. That doesn't work. I can't access it. You, uh, you just just point the cursor up. The, 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 the button to open it is the top of the locker, not in the middle. Oh. Yeah, just push your cursor up and then hit you. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> You're not the only, only, only person that said that. that, that is, there's multiple people that have been confused by that. My brother included, actually. He's like, gotta fix that, gotta fix that. It's, it's, it turns out patching a game like this after it's been launched is, is a very tricky business because yeah, kind of um, just the way the engine works and stuff. It's hard to just make changes like that and not have people say the games be destroyed, which we don't want to do, right? So that's been really, that's been kind of dance for us, actually, um, balancing that out. Gregory McMartin of Interdimensional Games, thank you for joining us on Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon. Uh, if you want to play Consortium, you can find it uh, as the Master Edition on Steam, and it's about 20 bucks, and it's money well spent. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. You have just heard episode 80 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 29th, 2014. Our guest has been Gregory McMartin, game producer at Interdimensional Games, and we have been discussing their latest sci-fi adventure murder mystery game, Consortium. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio station manager Gene Turnbow and our executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on November 30th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. Our production manager is Cat Carter, and sound engineering was done by Gene Turnbow. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.